All right. Well, good morning again. I think I've said that two or three times already. But my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And today is just another day preaching the word, reading the word, and seeing what God has for us. We're thankful at Hagerstown Church to be an ordinary church. Amen? Full of average Joes, full of, you know, average Jills. I don't know. What's the female version of that? But just doing our thing, just being normal, just being in a rhythm of life, walking with the Lord and and seeing what he has for us every single day. It doesn't have to be a giant event. We're just, we're here to, to study the word and we know that God has good things for us here. So today is just another day in our sermon series called Prepare the Way. So we've been looking through the Old Testament, a lot of prophets, and just a certain section of the Old Testament for the last few weeks. And today we're going to continue that study. And that study, Prepare the Way, is more than a sermon series. It's part of an overall strategy that we have here at Hagerstown Church to read the Bible cover to cover in the year of 2019. Not every word of the Bible, but a whole lot of the words of the Bible. Amen? And D-groups, that's been a lot of words, right? Look at Ezra, look at Nehemiah. That, those were a lot of words this week. And sometimes you go, Lord, what are you giving this to me for? But we're here to study it together. We're here to see what God has for us and what the heart of God was, especially right now in the Old Testament. And so our sermon series are part of our reading plans that we do at Hagerstown Church, and we're looking to just have a holistic view of reading the Bible together. So we read it together in our D groups, and then we talk about it together in our sermons, and hopefully the repetition will help us to understand just a little bit more than we understood when, when we first started. Answer some of those questions that you didn't even know that you had. So last week, Pastor Josh preached from the book of Ezra, and the main takeaway from that was that God has supplied everything that we need in order to accomplish the task of knowing him and making him known. And next week, Lord willing, we'll be hearing from one of our interns covering the book of Nehemiah. And we'll see God's people rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. We'll see them hearing the word for seven days, standing up outside in the Middle Eastern sun. And we'll see them making a fresh commitment to follow the Torah. But this week is right in between those two books. Ezra and Nehemiah sometimes are even referred to as kind of the same work. But this week, right in the middle, we're going to have something a little bit different. It's the book of Esther. So Esther doesn't feel like Ezra or Nehemiah. And honestly, Esther doesn't feel like a lot of the books of the Bible. If I could sum up the word, the book of Esther, in just three words, it would be those words right there on the screen. Appearance isn't everything. Like, for instance, when you see... Esther 1 through 10 down there, and you realize that we're going to be covering 272 verses in the next 36 minutes and 55 seconds. It appears that we're going to be here a long time, but I promise, I mean, like, you'll be able to eat dinner or something, probably, but so as we hear the story of Esther this morning, I want you to think about how appearance isn't everything, and I also want you to think about, like Pastor Josh read in the scripture reading, how things are held together. Have you ever been perplexed at how something is held together? Now, I am not a mechanic. I'm not even close to a mechanic. I'm not even, like Dan can tell you, like I don't even pretend to be a mechanic, but I have heard from people that do work on mechanical things that sometimes you can be under the hood of a car, you can be looking to remove a certain part, and you work at it, and you work at it, and you have a whole tray of like nuts and bolts and screws, and then you look up at this thing and you go, 
how is this thing still like sticking in here? Why is this thing not budging? I don't know how this, I thought I knew how this was held together. I don't get that, but mechanical people apparently get that. But I am a homeowner, and so I do relate in kind of sort of a different way, because when you buy a house, you also kind of agree to be like a general contractor. <laughs> you just kind of need to know a little bit of everything. And so a couple weeks ago, I was looking to replace a ceiling fan. So I'm up on the ladder. I tell myself, oh, this is going to be an easy job. You look on the internet, it says 45 minutes to an hour. You say, well, I have 45 minutes to an hour. But, you know, they lie. They really lie to you. And so you get on the ladder, you get up there, and there's not that much that is supposed to hold a ceiling fan into the ceiling. And so I take the screws out, I take all the other stuff out, it's still there. I read the internet thing, and they go, yeah, we, we don't know what you're talking about. You've taken everything out. And so I look, they're actually still the, the little finishing screws, and I'm like, surely the weight of this can't be held up by finishing screws. And so we take all the screws out, and I like step back because I'm like afraid it's gonna fall from the ceiling, and it's still there. I have no idea what is holding this thing together. It's pretty frustrating, and it took me a long time to figure out, but that's another story. So how are things held together? Can be a really frustrating thing, can be a really perplexing thing to wonder about sometimes. So the book of Esther has us asking that question. How is the universe held together? How is history across time, across culture, across personalities, how are they all intertwined, and how does God actually work all things together for his good? Now we know that verse, right? God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But how? And what deep truths to ponder? How in the world does he weave all of these things together? So that's, that's where we're at in Esther. So open up to Esther chapter 1. It's near the beginning of your Bibles. And while you're finding Esther chapter 1, I'm just going to give you a little bit of an overview. So Esther is an exciting book of the Bible. If you're just looking to be entertained, read Esther. It has all the classic storybook ingredients. You have a bold and beautiful heroine that makes everyone's heads turn. You have rapidly shifting love interests that like, make you really go back and read it again. You have a life or death threat to the good guys. Tension is building. You have a villain that everyone loves to hate. It's almost like I see Jafar whenever I think about Haman. Um, and of course, you have everything coming together against all odds to produce an ending that really just leaves you breathless. So the book really does seem to have it all. Esther is like in your face with everything except for God. There's not one mention of God's name in the book of Esther. Did you know that? It's one of only two books that you have in the scriptures that never actually mentions the name of God. Going through 10 chapters, 272 verses, he's, he's never there. There's no mentions of prayer. There are no dreams or visions like in the book of Daniel. There are no miraculous signs and wonders that are occurring out in broad daylight. And so that brings attention up to the surface. Where is God in the book of Esther? And how will he come through to protect his people? So if you were thinking that this week, whenever you were in your, your F-260 plan and you were reading through it and it was a little bit confusing to you, that's where the author of Esther wanted you to be. The author of Esther designed this story so that you'd be asking those types of questions. 
the author is challenging us to look at history and see the fingerprints of God where he's not explicitly mentioned. Normally, when the God of Israel comes back and saves his people, he responds spectacularly, obviously. Pillars of fire, pillars of cloud, the parting of the Red Sea. Everybody knows that something's happening that's not natural to save God's people. But in Esther, God works silently through what looks like a series of random events that turn out to be a sequence of divinely ordered events. And even though God's name isn't mentioned, you're going to see that he's unmistakably the main character in the book. So if you don't get anything else today, this is the main point of what we're talking about. God is in complete control, even when he seems silent and the circumstances seem insurmountable. How many of y'all can relate to that? God is in complete control, even when he seems silent and circumstances seem insurmountable. We'll see in Esther that God's silence is not equal to absence. God's hiddenness is not equal to abandonment. And God is working out our salvation, and he's keeping his promises, even when it looks like he's not around. So here, another way that we say that is that we say God is sovereign. And this is what sovereign means. When we say that God is sovereign, we mean that he's powerful and authoritative to the extent of being able to override all other powers and authorities. That's what sovereign means. Able to override all other powers and authorities. We'll explicitly see that in the book of Esther. So buckle your seatbelts, 200 and however many verses in the next 30 minutes. Here we go. Three points that are going to kind of hold this all together. Number one, God is at work in the darkness. Number two, God turns the tables. That's wild. And number three, God keeps his promises. So let's jump back up to the first point here. God is at work in the darkness. So the story of Esther takes place over 100 years after the Israelites were taken into the Babylonian captivity. They were unfaithful to the Lord. The Babylonians took them off into exile. They lived under Babylonian rule for 70 years until the Babylonians got conquered by the Persians. When the Persians showed up, they said, you're free to go. You can go back wherever you want to go. And most of them said, one ticket to Jerusalem. So all the people that were the most wise, that knew the law the best, the people that really longed to see God's promises come to pass, said, thanks, we would like to go back to Jerusalem, where we came from. But not everybody went back. Some people scattered all throughout the Persian Empire. Some people were found in Susa, which is where our narrative is today. Susa was a citadel, a highly fortified capital city of an ancient empire. It was located in modern-day Iran. And it was the capital of Persia, which was a vast empire stretching from Africa to Pakistan, controlling much of what they even knew to be the known world. And so in Susa, in that capital city, you find a community of Jews, and in that community, you find Esther. So in that scattering in Susa, in a foreign land, we see our main character. So how many of y'all have ever heard of a musical, a movie called Fiddler on the Roof. Show of hands. You know Fiddler? You like Fiddler? Everybody has a love-hate relationship with Fiddler. You either really like it or you're like, three hours? Really? So in the opening monologue, the main character, Tevya, 
is describing his day-to-day experience in early 20th century Russia. He talks about how difficult it is to be a Jew in that particular context. He compares living in Russia to a fiddler standing on the roof, trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck, trying to keep his balance in a world that is just really confusing to them. When asked why he stayed at home in Anatevka, even when it's uncomfortable, Tevya says, it's not easy, but it's home. And I'm sure that that's how many Jews in Persia felt about the culture in which they found themselves. It's not easy, but it has been home for them for some time, over 50 years at this point, whenever we get to Esther. Think about what it must have been like to be a Jew in that place at that time with that sort of culture surrounding them. Listen to what this commentator has to say about how it felt. They were not like those who lived around them, and they knew that their overlords could not be trusted. The Persians held all the power in their hands, and the Jews had none. Even though these Jews had been born in Persia, they were exiles far from their homeland, surrounded by strangers. Their property could be seized or their life ended in a moment on the whim of some petty bureaucrat, which is exactly what is feared to happen in the book of Esther. It must have been easy for Esther and Mordecai to feel overwhelmed, if nothing else, by the pressure of living in a foreign land with those values that seem to oppose everything about their faith. While God seems to be invisible and distant to them, guess what's not invisible to a Jew in Susa? Persia. The water in which they're swimming is right there. It's impossible to forget about Persia's world-ruling, empire-smashing strength when you hear the rhythm of the soldiers' steps outside your door. When you can hear the rumble of the chariot wheels coming down the road, you know that Persia is there. Persia is tangibly present. But where is God? Can you hear him? Can you feel the presence of God? Where was he? With that pressure constantly on them, it would have been easy to just let their faith fade into the background. Not in a week, not in a month, not in six months, but in a generation or two generations or three generations. The natural thing to do would have been to slowly assimilate into the culture of the world, to look no different than Persians, to just slowly camouflage themselves, to be completely assimilated after about a hundred years. So I'm saying assimilate a couple times because I'm about to make a Star Trek reference. I don't know, are y'all Trekkies? Are there any Trekkies at all? Self, Chris is a Trekkie? Okay, that's cool. So it reminds me of the Borg. And even people that don't watch Star Trek may know something about the Borg because it, at least you would know the catchphrase. The Borg is always saying, I have to look at my notes, right? Resistance is futile. You must be assimilated. And I don't know how it sounds, so I won't do the voice or anything. But just over and over, resistance is futile. You must be assimilated. I'm making a fool of myself. I've never even seen a whole episode of Star Trek. But it makes sense to me, culturally, that that's what Persia would be screaming toward the Jews. Resistance to this eventually will be futile to you. And you will be assimilated to our culture. And so when people hear that over and over, I imagine in Star Trek what happened is that their hope would just slowly diminish. And over a period of time, they would say, okay, cool, 
And that's what happens to us sometimes in the world. As we try to live our faith, as we try to really apply the gospel, over time, just little bits of that will creep in. How easy it is to assimilate. They, like us, needed to be encouraged by truths like Paul shared with the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. They needed to be reminded to be steadfast, to be immovable, to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that your labor, even though it's going to take 50, 60, 70, 100 years, your labor is not in vain. Even though there's going to be periods of six months or five years where it may feel like that, and God may not choose to show himself in a way that feels real to you, be steadfast and immovable. So here are the Persians. Here are the Jews in Persia. And they're feeling the weight of it. And assimilation looks mighty fine right about now. And so here we come to our main characters, Esther and Mordecai. So when we see them, it's easy to remember the movies or the, the flannel graph in the Sunday school classroom where they come through and everything looks just sparkling clean about them. But there is a level of moral compromise that's enough to make you just a little bit uncomfortable about these characters. So we don't have enough time to get into all the details of the story, but here's a summary. At the very outset, the king of Persia puts his first wife away and then begins to search for another wife. During that process, Esther gets selected as one of the most beautiful women in the known world at that time and gets entered into something that is euphemistically referred to by some as a beauty contest. Now, that's nowhere near what it actually was. Um, it's not like they stood in line and, and they were like American Idol and, and they really just wanted to be chosen. They were taken into custody by the Persian authorities and they were put into a place where they had no consent and they ended up wasting away at the behest of the king. They were mistreated. They were forgotten, these women. And, and Esther comes into this group of women in a really, really dark place. I mean, that, that happens in our own world even today. There are people that we need to pray for that don't have consent about where they are and, and what they're forced to do. And we, we need to be moved to, to pray for them. But here we find Esther in the midst of that, even though it's dark and trying, but the troubling thing is that we don't really see her being faithful to God in the places that she could have been. She listened to Hegai more than any of the other women. In essence, she kind of becomes a Barbie doll, selling out to the standards of the world in, in that place and at that time. Think about Daniel just a couple weeks ago and how you can contrast it with the way that the believers acted there. In Daniel, the characters stood up for what they believed in. They even sang songs about it back in the day, like, I've, you know, be like a Daniel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. In Daniel, they committed to be good citizens as long as it didn't infringe on their obedience. So they tried to be as good of a citizen as they can, but never compromising the truth of their faith. But in Esther, you see Esther hiding the fact that the, she even was Jewish. You see her eating the food that, that the world asked her to eat when in Daniel, you see explicit refusals to do so. You see her sleeping with a man who's not her husband, and then marrying that man, who is a pagan, idol-worshiping unbeliever against everything that the Jewish faith was teaching her. And this isn't even to mention Mordecai. From the beginning of Esther's situation, he orders her to keep her faith a secret and just blend in. Who would do something like this? This is not a picture of faithfulness with Esther and Mordecai. But 
you see that God stays with Esther throughout the narrative. He's patient with her. And by the end of the book, you see Esther becoming a brave heart. You see her being a picture of faithfulness. He stays with Mordecai too. And like we'll see later, God is placing both he and Esther in just the right place at just the right time in order to bring salvation to the Jews. So what do you take away from that? What you take away is that no matter how bad you may have messed up, no matter where you are right now and how much shame you would carry, no matter how much you feel like there's no way God would ever accept you, you can't write yourself out of God's story. You don't have that kind of power. God is patient with us, and God loves us because he loves himself. And we see that all over with Esther and Mordecai. So you see some moral compromise there, but you see God's faithfulness through it. But then you see God's people under a death sentence. So now's as good a time as any to introduce Haman. So this is the character that everybody loves to hate. He occupied an office similar to prime minister, kind of like second in command in Persia. But make no mistake, Haman was not a selfless public servant. Haman was no philanthropist. Haman wanted what Haman wanted. He was a corrupt government official with no qualms about self-dealing. And he's going to do whatever it takes to get whatever he wants. And what does he want? Does he want money? This man is rich. This man has whatever he wants. This man's house is like five houses. This man can pay for whatever he wants and he doesn't even have to lift a finger. Does he want power? He's second in command. I think he's kind of okay with with where he is. He has an immense amount of power and he, he really does like to wield it. But what we see Haman ravenously desiring in this text is honor. He doesn't want money or power necessarily, but he wants people to know that he has money and power. He wants the recognition of what he sees himself to be. And unless that gets validated by everyone that he comes into contact with, things come crashing down. You'll really see that Haman's actually a remarkably fragile character in the text. Haman will do anything to get honor. He'll be torqued off when he doesn't get it. And, spoiler alert, he ultimately loses his life in the quest for honor. So if you're mapping out the story of Esther, you know those arcs where you have the inciting incident and then you have all the rising events, you have the climax in the denouement, the inciting incident could be in Esther chapter three. So let's turn to chapter three and read the first six verses together. I told you we're racing through this thing. So verse one of chapter three is where the death sentence comes down. The text says, after these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set the throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, 
And Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the entire kingdom of Xerxes. So put yourself in the Jewish position here. Their situation is unmistakably dire. The Jews, by no collective fault of their own, have found themselves under a royally decreed death sentence. And on the 13th day of the first month, by order of the king, virtually all Jews on the face of the earth, including those in Ezra and Nehemiah, those that have already returned to Jerusalem, were to be robbed, pillaged, and ultimately exterminated. But little did they know, in the midst of this dark night, God had already planted the seeds of their salvation. History was being ordered in a way that only God could do. So let's look at point two. God turns the tables. So flip over a couple chapters. Esther chapter six. This is where we're going to camp out for most of our time. Because from a a, a literary perspective, chapter six is the pivot point of the entire story. So both halves of Esther are parallel accounts. One going down toward the Jewish destruction and one coming up toward God's faithfulness. And right in the middle, we find chapter six, where everything kind of flips. It's fascinating here. We'll see that in the words of some preacher from long ago that nobody can identify. God can use a crooked stick to draw a a straight line. Y'all ever heard that before? God can use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. He can work with anybody, good, evil, believing, unbelieving, and he's going to accomplish his purposes. By the time we get to the end of chapter 6, we'll see all sorts of crooked sticks drawn straight lines. We'll see God in control in amazing ways. So let's walk through this chapter bit by bit. I'm going to have to kind of tell the story to get us caught up to chapter 6. So the Jews are in mourning. They're preparing themselves for their execution day, which was planned out almost a year in advance. They woke up marking these days off and knowing that they had almost a year until their extermination. And so they lived under this cloud, and they really were in mourning. But Haman's been riding high. And Mordecai reaches out to Esther, who's in the palace, being queen, and and Mordecai says, you've got to do something, anything, to save your people. Mordecai believes that no matter what he does, no matter what Esther does, God's going to keep his promises. But Mordecai can't help but wonder aloud to Esther whether she's not been put in the palace for such a time as this. So Esther has this genius idea. She takes Mordecai's advice and she prepares a banquet for her husband so that she can plead the case for the Jews. She makes everything perfect. She gets Xerxes in the room. She gets them all distracted by the splendor of his own wealth and royalty, and she just really kind of butters them up. And then she invites Haman so that he can be identified as the perpetrator of these horrible crimes against the queen. How are you going to get Haman in the same room so that you can accomplish this? Well, the same way you got Xerxes in the room. You distract them with all the splendor of, of the kingdom, and you really, like, puff up their ego. So Haman's on his way in here, to be given a sentence of death. But on his way in, Haman is not thinking anything like that. What's Haman thinking? Haman's thinking, I'm going to get a lot of followers out of this. My follower count on Twitter is going to go through the roof. What am I going to wear to this? How about this bow tie? No, how about this bow tie over here? I got to take my selfie before I get in there. Because, you know, if you don't have a selfie, it didn't happen. This is the most exclusive thing. What hashtag am I going to use? People have got to know 
that I'm in here with just the king and the queen. This is like the opportunity of a lifetime for me. So they all get together in the same room. Everything seems to be going smoothly, and then, well, it's not. The king says, what would you like, Esther? I'll do anything for you, up to half the kingdom. And she says, king, my request to you is, uh, um, well, is that you come back tomorrow. Yeah, let's, let's do this again tomorrow. Is that all right? Why, why did she stop? Why didn't she just put it all out there right now? If, if you've prepared everything for this moment, and you did in the beginning of the sentence, and you say, well, can you come back tomorrow? Why would that happen? Does Esther even know why it happened? Maybe not. The text doesn't say. But the Lord is perfectly ordering things with laser-like precision to take care of his people. You see, we're in situations right now that we have no idea why things are happening the way that they happen. Things just feel completely meaningless and chaotic. But God is in precise control, expert control. The word expert doesn't even come to the same plane as, as the level of precision with which God is weaving everything together. So everybody leaves the banquet here. Haman leaves super happy because he got to go to this exclusive party and even happier because he's coming back tomorrow. Same time, same station, doing the same fancy stuff. He walks out. He's probably a little tipsy, honestly. And he just can't... I don't know, he can't contain himself until he sees Mordecai. And the fact that Mordecai is still doing that same old stuff, not bowing, not giving honor, exploding Haman's image of himself, throws him into a fury. He goes from glad to murderously mad on a dime. And the extent that Haman is controlled by his own vanity and his pride is like on full display right here. So Haman goes home, not feeling so happy anymore, and he decides to get a plan together. He says he's going to put this to bed once and for all, and he's not waiting until extermination day for Haman. Haman's going to have his own day, and that day is tomorrow, because Haman's about had enough. So he says, go and build this gigantic gallows just for Mordecai, and we're going to give him what he's due. So he puts the work order in, the people get started, and Haman sleeps like a baby, probably. The text says that he was overjoyed that night when he went to bed. But that brings us to chapter 6. Y'all got it? Chapter 6, verse 1. Let's start in verse 1, because we see somebody else whose sleep quality is not exactly the same. Verse 1 says, On that night the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. So Haman is sleeping like a baby, murderously plotting the extermination of not only the whole Jewish race, but just specific people that he despises. Wickedness pouring out, but sleeping like a baby. And here's King Xerxes, not able to get a wink. Why is that? There's nothing in the text. If, if it was in the book of Daniel, the king wouldn't be sleeping because the king would be getting visions that require interpreters, things that are incredibly supernatural. But here, God seems to be silent. Why is Xerxes an insomniac? There's no way to know. One commentator could not have been serious, but he said maybe there was so much construction on this giant gallows right outside Xerxes' window that, you know, it's like living in downtown Hagerstown. Like, you just can't 
sleep over all the construction noise. That's probably not true, but who knows? But the fact is he can't sleep, and God is using that as a, air quote, coincidence in order to bring this together. So what's King Xerxes do when he can't sleep? Does he count sheep? No, he does what some other people do. He finds the most boring book that he can find, and he just to read it. But, you know, he's royal, so he doesn't actually pick up the book himself and read it to himself. He says, hey, Alexa, what's the most boring thing on the Internet? Read me that. And so here comes the servant, who's probably named Alexa, and he has, like, this, like, record of everything that's happened during Xerxes' reign. So he just picks one off the shelf of this giant section of what's been done, probably, opens the book, begins to read, and what's he see? Mordecai. Things about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. What a coincidence. So let me back up a little. Something we didn't cover in chapter 2. Mordecai did save the king's life. So in the very early days of Esther's reign, where could you find Mordecai? No matter what time of day, it seemed like Mordecai was always right outside the gate, just hoping to hear a little something about how Esther was doing. He just wanted to make sure that she's doing okay. And so he's out there just waiting on a little bit of, of good word, reassuring word, about a girl that feels like his daughter. And so while he's there listening in, he happens to hear something else. He hears a plot that two guards want to actually kill King Xerxes. So he does the right thing. You know, see something, say something. He passes the word along. And so he tells Esther, and Esther tells Xerxes, an investigation starts. These people get executed because that plan was real. Xerxes' life was in imminent danger, and his reign would have come to an abrupt end. Had it not been for Mordecai, coincidentally overhearing this thing and bringing the word all the way around so that Xerxes' life is preserved. So after you do something like that, you expect a ticker tape parade. You expect an attaboy. You expect tons of affirmation. You expect at least something, but nothing happens. For four years, no recognition. And here comes Xerxes listening to the thing, and he says, what did we ever do for that guy? Now Xerxes may not have even known his relation to Esther. And he definitely was unaware of how Haman felt about Mordecai. And it turns out that they forgot to do anything to honor old Mordecai. What a coincidence. So another thing to know about King Xerxes. It's apparent from the narrative that he's never making a decision by himself. He can never really make up his mind without hearing like seven other people's opinions. You see that all throughout the text, and it kind of makes him look really small, which was another... um, motive in the text. Persia is not as great as you may think they are, and Xerxes isn't as powerful as you think that he is. And so he hears that something needs to be done for Mordecai, and what's the first thing that he says? Where are my counselors? I need somebody to help me make this decision. And they say, well, you know, it's kind of early because you're not sleeping and stuff, but there actually is one person out in the court, and it's Haman. And for some reason, he looks really excited and like he wants to ask you something. So here we are. Chapter 6. Let's pick up in verse 6. The text says, So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, the only time you ever hear thoughts in the book of Esther is this thought. Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, me, let royal robes be brought, 
which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, me, and let them lead them on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before the king, Thus shall it be done for the man, Haman, in his head, whom the king delights to honor. So then, here's the pivot point of the pivot point. The king says to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, and leave nothing out that you have mentioned. You ever seen the blood drain out of somebody's face? Have you ever seen somebody like, looked like their, their toy got stolen or their popsicle fell on the ground or something like that? Like, Haman is just floored. Do so to Mordecai, the Jew. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. So we see the folly of arrogance, in a sense, that God is always going to humble the proud. And God will give grace to the humble. And God will accomplish his plans no matter how much you would try to get in the way. And that no matter how long someone can keep on sinning and feel so prosperous, God is faithful to expose it. God's faithful to judge the wickedness. God's faithful to bring the proper end to the evildoer. So here we see Haman hurrying to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. Notice those words, his head covered. Because the next time in the text that you see Haman's head covered is in chapter 7, after the second banquet, which I wish we had time to read in its entirety. Haman will be exposed for who he is. His crimes will be put out in public before the king. And the guards will hurriedly throw a bag over his head, covering his head again, and leading him away to be hanged on the gallows that he built for Mordecai yesterday. What a powerful image. A man full of pride, full of hate, hungry for attention, being undone by his own hateful acts. And that's not the last time that you'll see something like that in Scripture. Think about Satan's hatred for God's people. Think about Satan's desire for his own honor. Think about how Satan wants to be recognized above everybody else. And think about the murderous plan that Satan had for the Son of God. And now think of how Satan's desire for Jesus' destruction ended with the cross. The very undoing of everything that Satan had so murderously desired since the very beginning. So we see God turning the tables here. Now we see God keeping his promises. So from that point until the end of the story, all of Haman's wicked plans come undone. And God's promises become fulfilled. And so I just want to kind of give you an overview of the end of the book and how God ultimately shows himself to be faithful. So the first point here is that scattered or not, in Esther and right here, God always protects his people. God always protects his people. So another decree went out saying that giving the Jews a chance at life effectively, even though their day was approaching, even though it was absolutely, it was on the calendar, it was as certain as it could have been, God turned the tables. 
And God is always working to protect his people. The second point, quickly, regardless of their morality, God patiently uses his people. And he was patient with Esther and Mordecai. Like we said, Esther and Mordecai were not perfect moral examples. If you have kids and you're trying to teach them to act right and sit up straight and do all that stuff, yes sir, no sir, yes ma'am, no ma'am, you don't turn to Esther and say, be like them. Like, what kind of kids would you have if you say, be exactly like Esther and do everything that Esther did, you know? They both failed, big time. But just like us, God doesn't give up on us. So if you're coming to the Bible looking for just moral examples in the story, you're doing it wrong. The Bible's not about that. The message of the Bible is not that God blesses and saves those who live exemplary lives. The message of the Bible is that God persistently and continuously gives grace to people that don't even ask for it, people that don't deserve it, and people that after they get it, don't even fully appreciate it. And God is constantly, persistently doing that for his children every single day. We don't deserve it. We don't recognize it when it shows up. And when it does show up and sustain us, we don't even appreciate it sometimes. And God was so patient to do that with his people in Esther. So finally, God turns a death sentence into a triumph over Israel's enemies. Another way to say that is God overturned Israel's death sentence. Did you know that God's a pro at turning death to life? And as we read through the scriptures together, we know and we see over and over that God loves to take things that are headed straight for destruction and by his own strength turn them into life. He loves making beauty out of brokenness. He loves restoring things to better than they ever were before because it's just a little picture and a little taste of his own glory. And people get to see a little bit of who he actually is in that. So remember at the beginning, we were talking about how things all hold together. How is Esther held together? How is this ceiling fan still in the ceiling? How did this narrative actually stay together? Now think back over the details of Esther's story and see the fingerprints of God all over it. John Piper says it this way, God is always in all of his children's lives doing 10,000 things at the same time. And if we're lucky, we may be aware of three of them, maybe four. But that brings us back to our main point, that God is in complete control, even when he's been silent for a long time and the circumstances seem insurmountable. So John Piper also compares God's sovereignty to the golden stitches that hold the gospel together. And those stitches hold this narrative together and those stitches are holding tomorrow and the next day and three months from now together for you. As God molds us all into the image of his son, it doesn't look like this straight upward trajectory without any bumps in the road. But in hindsight, and one day on that day when we have perfect knowledge, we'll see those golden stitches holding it all together. And hopefully you'll be able to read through the text and continue reading the Old Testament with us and see those sovereign golden stitches throughout all the narrative. So if you take nothing else away today, as we read the Bible together, let it lead you to worship. Let it lead you not to just learn more stuff. Let it lead you to love God. Let it lead you 
to hold him in reverence for how he has absolute control over everything. Let it lead you to be in awe of the fact that he speaks universes into existence by the word of his power. Yet he transcends, and yet he cares about laser-like details in all of our lives. It's obvious this morning, through this text, that God is good, he's sovereign. He's able to save, and he's worthy of our praise. Amen, church? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the details in this text. We thank you that you really do work all things together. Even when there are protracted periods of what feels like despair sometimes. Things feel like a chaotic mess. Sometimes it feels like that for a long time. But we thank you that we can trust in your goodness. Lord, we ask that you'd apply this truth to our hearts today. That you would give us that Esther, Mordecai-like trust. Even if God doesn't move this way, Lord, when we ask. We know that whatever way he is moving, he's going to accomplish his promises. God, give us that sort of faith knowing that even when things work out in confusing ways, that you're always good, that you're always wise. Lord, help us to endure through the times that seem dark. Help us to not give in to the despondency that that really ends up plaguing our lives so often, Lord. We ask that you'd help us do that together, honestly that you would use this community and use the friendships that you're building right here today in order for us to wade through the dark times together. Lord, help us to be honest about that. Even when the right words are not going to be there, Lord, we ask that you would help us to help each other to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And Lord, help us to see your fingerprints over whatever life is going to bring to us. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.